Well, good morning. You know, uh, if you listened when Paul read the sermon text, these, these are what are called royal psalms. They're psalms about the king. And, and, and the Psalm 20 we saw was a prayer for the king. Psalm 21 was more a rejoicing and answered prayer for the king. But we in the United States, especially in the 21st century, don't have any idea what it's like to have a king. Uh, you know, king, they, they say that there are, I, I googled this so that I could sound intelligent, there are a few absolute monarchies left in the world, but I don't know how absolute they really are. But back in the day, back in the Old Testament when I was a kid, monarchies were absolute. Okay? The king had absolute power, and the king was in power as long as he lived. Okay? Here in the United States, if we don't like the president, we try to vote him out in four years. And if that doesn't work, he's got to leave after eight anyway. And we don't have absolute power in our, our president. We have... Uh, we have a legislative branch, and we have a judicial branch, and we have a system of checks and balances so that one branch doesn't become too powerful. And so we don't really understand everything that, that the people of Israel knew about living under a king. But one of the things, one of the themes of these psalms is that the welfare of the nation was intimately connected to the welfare of the king. And we see that played out in the histories of Israel and Judah. When they had a godly king, things went well. And when they had wicked kings, the nation usually followed suit. And eventually, both Israel and Judah were taken off into the captivity, largely because of the iniquity of their kings. Well, the United Kingdom of Great Britain is an example of a monarchy, but their, their queen is not, doesn't really have much power at all. She's mostly a figurehead. She's mostly someone that's there for the pageantry, someone that's there for their, as a symbol of their nation, to encourage patriotism, but really not any ruling power. And yet their national anthem is entitled, God Save the King, or as it's been for the last 69 years, God Save the Queen. And I want you to listen to the words, the lyrics of their national anthem. God save our gracious king. Long live our noble king. God save the king. Send him victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us. God save the king. And to us that might sound weird as a national anthem. All about the king. But we don't understand that connection as well between the welfare of the people and the welfare of the king. When, these, when, the, when the people of the United Kingdom sing, God save the king, they're really saying, God save us. 
And that's kind of what we see going on here in Psalm 20 and 21. You, one commentator said you could almost take Psalm 20 as a national anthem for the nation of Israel. These psalms ask God to give the king victory and success and protection. They ask God to fulfill the desires of the king's heart and to give him long life. Both psalms, 20 and 21, were written by David for the nation of Israel, encouraging them to pray for their king, and by extension then to pray for themselves and to give them a template for how to pray. It's almost like a model prayer. They appear to be songs that were sung as part of a liturgy whenever the king was ready to go out to battle. Psalm 20 would have been a song that they sang beforehand, and Psalm 21 either after the king had come back from battle in a victory celebration or perhaps just in response to the 20th Psalm beforehand as a confident affirmation that God would answer their prayers. The key theme in each Psalm is found in verse 7 of each Psalm. So I want to look at Psalm 27. It says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. And then Psalm 21, 7 says, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So David has written these songs to remind himself, because he was king when he wrote these, to remind himself and to remind the kings that came after him that they must trust in God in order to be successful. And with that in mind, the main proposition for my message today is that God's people must trust in God in every circumstance of their lives. God's people must trust in God in every circumstance of their lives. Easy to say, easy to put on coins, not so easy to do in practice. And so today we want to see what David has to say on the subject in these two psalms. And my prayer for you today is that you will leave here with a commitment to trust God with everything in your lives and to go to him in prayer as your default mechanism, as your first response to any situation. So let's begin looking at Psalm 20. In verse 1, David alludes to a troubling situation. Something's going on. It doesn't specifically mention war, but the language of the rest of the psalm is, tells us pr pretty much that it was. They were getting ready to go to battle. It talks about chariots and horses. And 21 talks about God vanquishing their enemies. The king is facing this day of trouble, and David encourages the, na the nation to pray that the king will trust in God to bring him salvation and bring the nation salvation. Let's look at some of the specific requests. Verse 1 in chapter of Psalm 20, verse 1, says, May the Lord answer you, talking to the king, may the Lord answer you and protect you. Verse 2, May he send help to support you from heaven. Verse 3, may he remember all your offerings and regard your sacrifices. 
Verse 4, may he grant the desires of the king's heart and fulfill all his plans. Verse 5, may we have a joyous celebration over your salvation by God. And may God fulfill all your petitions. Notice how David understands that the result of this battle is entirely in the hands of God. And notice that he's encouraging the king and the army and the people to trust in God to give them victory. David knew this truth even as a boy when he faced Goliath on the field of battle. And they were approaching each other and Goliath hurled insults at David and David responded this way in 1 Samuel 17. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And with that, David slung the stone that killed the giant. Now I want to make something clear this morning. When I encourage you to trust in the Lord in every situation, I'm not saying trust in the Lord, pray, and then do nothing. Okay? David did not go empty-handed at Goliath. David had trained. David knew how to sling a stone. But David was confident because he knew that the Lord was on his side. And he trusted in God to give him the victory. He knew that he himself was not going to win the victory without help from the Lord. And so David in his prayer here in Psalm 20 to pray for the king is not saying, well, pray for the king and then we'll just round up a bunch of guys off the street and send them out with nothing in the battle and God will give us the victory. So even though David says, David doesn't tell them, pray that, that we'll be mighty with the sword. Pray that the archers will be skillful. Pray that our commanders will have a, a good strategy. He doesn't say to do that. But that doesn't mean that it's not important. You understand what I'm saying? Preparation was important. And then pray and put your trust not in your chariots and horses, but put your trust in God to give you the victory. And so David instructs the people to pray that God will give success to the king. And he emphasizes that in that main verse that we spoke of earlier in Psalm 20, verse 7, where he says, some trust in horses and some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of God. Now, I want to Take a little side rabbit trail here. When David says, we trust in the name of God, he's not saying, as some are wont to do, that there's some kind of magical power in shouting God's name at people or Jesus' name at people. That is not what David is saying here. What David is saying, because remember, in the Old Testament, we talked about this when we went through the book of Exodus, 
the name of a person, then the name, especially the name of God, speaks to who God is. It speaks to his entire character and nature and his attributes and his moral purity. And so when David says, trust, we trust in the name of the Lord, he's saying we trust in God, who God is, and the fact that God, we are his covenant people. We're trusting in the name of God to help us, to, to strengthen, to give us the strength to be victorious. And so Psalm 20 is teaching the people of Israel to trust in God by praying for their king and teaching himself, reminding himself and the kings that come after him that they need to trust in God first and foremost for their success. And as I said earlier, Psalm 21 appears to be a response to this prayer. It starts and ends. If you look at Psalm 21 in your Bibles, you'll notice that verse 1 says that the king rejoices in the strength of the Lord. Then go down to the last verse, verse 12. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. It starts and ends with praise for the strength of God. That's who God is. God is our strength. That's who we're trusting in. Now let's look at, at some of the things in Psalm 21 that link up with Psalm 20, which is why we're preaching them together. There are some very strong links. We've already mentioned the verse 7s, right, about trusting in God. Verse 2 of Psalm 21 says, God has given his, the king his heart's desire. We remember that from Psalm 20. Verse 2 again, God has answered the king's prayer. Verse 20, asking God to answer his petitions, to fulfill his petitions. Verse 5, God saved the king, and we're rejoicing over that. And verse 6, God blessed the king and filled him with joy. And so there are the links that we see in the two psalms and why we are preaching them together and we believe that they go together and that 21 is a response to 20. However, the last, the verses 8 through 12 in Psalms, Psalm 21 take a, a, slight, a slightly different theme. David doesn't really mention the enemies in verse 20. They're there. They're not talked about. But in verses 8 to 12, we learn of the destiny of the enemies of Israel. Look at them. Verse 8, the king will find out all of his enemies with God's help. Verse 9, the blazing fire of God's wrath will consume them. And recall that in the Old Testament, fire and ovens are often metaphors for the judgment of God. Verse 10, the enemies will be destroyed. Verse 11, though the enemies plot evil and devise mischief, God will make sure they do not succeed. And verse 12, the enemies will be put to flight. And when I read, read that, it made me think of, the, it seems like, countless accounts in Judges and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles in the history of, of Israel and Judah when the enemy was confounded by God before the battle even started. Sometimes they didn't even have to fight. One time they, they got so confused the enemy just killed each other and, and they went in and cleaned up. 
At other times, God worked through the skill and, of, of David and his mighty men to win, the, to win the, the battle. But David knew from personal experience that this is how the enemies of Israel, this is what would happen to them when they had a godly king, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And in his role as prophet, he's foreseeing, prophesying that this will continue to be the destiny of the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God. And so, Psalm 20 and 21, in the original context in which David wrote these psalms, Psalm 20 is a prayer for the nation to pray for their king in the day of trouble. And Psalm 21 is a confident affirmation that God will answer that prayer. But as we read through the Psalms, David, though David is a king, David is also portrayed as almost a prototype of the ideal member of the community of God. He's the ideal child of God. And so because of that, as we read these Psalms in 20 and 21, these prayers that David preached or teaches the, the nation of Israel to, pre, to pray for their king are prayers that we can appropriate for ourselves. We can look at this prayer that David is urging the people to pray, and we can pray them for each other, and as I said, for ourselves. So let's take an inventory of what David is teaching in Psalms 20 and 21. And the first thing that we want to talk about is that, that David, remember the main theme is we must trust in God, right? What are we going to trust in God for? Well, first, the first thing we're going to trust in God for is what, what David says in Psalms 20 and 21, and that is salvation. Salvation from what? Well, first and foremost, every person needs salvation from God's wrath. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, I want you to listen because this is the gospel. We were created by a loving God. We are his creatures. He created us for a purpose. And the purpose was to honor and glo bring glory to him through our faithful obedience to him. And we have all failed, starting with Adam. And because of Adam's sin, we are all born, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan. And we are in bondage, enslaved to the desires of our own bodies and our mind, the sinful desires of our bodies and minds. And he says we are by nature children of wrath, which is a, his way of saying that we all deserve to be punished for our sin. We all deserve to be punished eternally because we have committed cosmic treason against our creator. We are not living the way we were created to live. But God, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
being rich in mercy, sent his son, the son of God, sent him to walk this earth in human form, born of human parents, or at least a human mother, born of a virgin, raised by human parents, walked the earth among human beings, but he was different. He was different than all the other people that he walked the earth with, and that is because he did fulfill what he was created, well, not created, what, he, what we were created to do, he fulfilled it. He lived his life in humble submission to his father, in faithful obedience to him. And because he was faithfully obedient to the father, he laid down his life. They didn't take it from him. He laid down his life on the cross, suffering the humiliation and the excruciating pain on our behalf, taking the punishment that was due to us, absorbing the wrath of God that was due to us. God, the Father, made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great deal for us if we will put our faith in what Jesus Christ has done in his death and resurrection and his life and his ascension and all that Christ has done if we put our faith in that for our, thus our forgiveness of our sin and for our salvation from the wrath of God, our guilt has been taken away and placed on Jesus, and Jesus was punished for our sin. And Jesus' perfect righteousness has been placed on us, and in the eyes of God, we stand perfectly righteous. That's the gospel. And if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, I plead with you to do so today. Ask him to save you. And if you have put your faith and trust, then we can take the verse, like, like Psalm 21, verse 4. It says, he asked long life of you, and you gave him length of days forever and ever. Now, for the Israelite kings and the, and the kings of Judah, that was just a way of saying, if your heart is with God, if you are trusting in God, he'll give you long life. But for us, on this side of the cross, we can appropriate that for ourselves, and God has given us everlasting life. Whoever believes in the Son of God, John 3.16 says, will not perish but have eternal life. But these psalms promise salvation from the wrath of God, but they also promise salvation from enemies. It says in Psalm 21 that God will destroy the enemies of the people. Who are your greatest enemies? Don't think flesh and blood. Your greatest enemy is not that one guy at work or your grouchy neighbor or your spouse or your mother-in-law. Your greatest enemy, you have three of them. They are sin, Satan, and death. 
Those are your greatest enemies. And in Christ, Christ has destroyed those enemies. And in Christ, you are victorious over those enemies. So why not look at those one at a time? So I want to start with the fact that in Christ, we are victorious over sin. I want to take you to Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And Paul expands on that in Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Jesus lived a life of faithful obedience, overcoming temptation his entire life. And when he died, he crushed and destroyed the guilt of sin. He destroyed the hold that sin has over us so that when we come to him in faith, that old self dies. That's what baptism, that's one of the symbols of baptism. When we are lowered into the water, it shows that our old self is buried and dead. And we are raised in new life, a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so we are no longer enslaved by sin. We are not in a situation where we have to sin. We can put it to death. We can overcome it. And the reason that we can do that is because God has put within every believer the Holy Spirit of God, the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And so as, you, as a follower of Christ, you walk today with the Spirit of God in you and you have the ability not to sin. And yet, in our experience, we see that that victory is not yet complete, is it? You know, it's, it's sure Sin has been destroyed and overcome by Jesus. And we will one day be without sin. But right now we battle it, don't we? But in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome it. But like the kings mentioned in Psalms 20 and 21, we must go into that battle trusting in God. to win it for us. Oh, we have to prepare. How do we prepare to overcome sin? Read the Bible. Pray. And trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he said he would do. In Christ, we are victorious over our sin. In Christ, we are also victorious over Satan. Look at Hebrews 2. Verse 14, since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things. He took on a body of human flesh that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. In his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ destroyed the devil. 
And we can have victory over the devil in him. And yet in our experience, like Peter, we know that Satan prowls, right? Looking for souls to devour. And so we have to be wary, like the Rottweiler that lived next door to me. I was always a little wary of him, but I wasn't afraid of him. I'd go up and I'd pet him, but I made sure I could always get my hand back in case, right? That's kind of how we have to think about Satan. We should be wary but not fearful because Jesus, he is a defeated enemy. And God has given us tools to help us to stand against Satan. Ephesians 6, the armor of God. God has given us a helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And Paul ends that little section on the armor of God with, and pray at all times. We can overcome and stand against Satan by using the armor of God and by standing against him. We have everything. We've been given everything we need to overcome Satan in the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, in his death and resurrection, Jesus broke the bonds of death he conquered death. His body died and he was raised to life. And in his death and resurrection, he killed death. And yet again, just like with sin and Satan, we don't see that victory completely, do we? Because more than likely, everybody in this room is going to die one day. Unless Jesus comes back. But we have the promise of God that when Jesus does return, that the dead in Christ will rise to meet him in the air. And there will be no more death. And there will be no more suffering. And there will be no more sorrow because we will have a body like his. And the sweetest promise to me of all that is we will have a body in our body, our new resurrection bodies, we will be without sin. I'm looking forward to that day when I no longer have to battle against sin. In Christ, we are victorious over death, and one of the reasons that we're victorious over death, you may have noticed I didn't read verse 15 of Hebrews 2, so we'll ask Josh to put that back up. Hebrews 2 in verse 14, it says that through death, Christ might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I used to not want to grow old because I didn't want to die. Listen, in Christ we are delivered from the fear of death. Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's better, he says. 
for, for the follower of Christ, death is just a gateway to more abundant life. So we don't have to fear it. And what that means for us is we need to faithfully, when it comes our time to die, we need to do so faithfully and faith-filled fully. We need to show one another. Maybe that will be one of my jobs when I get old is to show the rest of the church what it means for a follower of Christ to die in faith. I pray that it is so. Unafraid. One of the last things my dad ever said to me when I asked him, are you afraid to die? And he said, no. And then he shared his testimony with me again. He taught me how to die as a Christian. And so like the kings in today's passages, God has vanquished our enemies. But I want to get back to that trust in God. Because another one of the promises in Psalms is that God will hear your petitions and answer them. You know, to be totally trustworthy of God and is to be a prayerful person. It takes a lot of faith to pray. It takes a lot of faith for prayer to be the first thing you do in every situation you encounter. I'm not there yet. I'm getting a little better. But if we truly are trusting in God, prayer will be our first response in every situation. Not something we do as a last resort. Well, I guess we have nothing to do now but pray. Right, praise the Lord. That's what you should have been doing all along, right? It takes a lot of faith to pray. It takes a lot of faith to believe that God is hearing your prayer and will answer it. Do you know what the hardest thing is? To trust God that the answer he gives you is the best one. Because often, what we think is best is not what God thinks is best. And it takes a lot of faith to trust that his ways are perfect and his timing is perfect. And it's so hard. It's so hard when we pray for a loved one that is sick and it's and there's no healing. It's so hard when we pray for our parents to get better or, or another loved one to get better and, and they die. Or when we pray for that job and we don't get it. Or when we pray to keep our job and we lose it. And when we pray for our marriage to get better and we don't see the results that we want. When we pray for our children to stop rebelling and we don't see anything happening, it can feel like God's not listening. And I don't know what I'm doing to make that windy noise, but I'm going to choose to think it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Listen, we need to walk by faith. Listen to me. 
We need to walk by faith and not by feelings. We need to walk by faith and not by sight. And we need to trust God that he does hear and answer our prayers. And I know it is so hard. Now, we've got, I don't know how many former pastors in our church, more than two or three, that have been in situations where they were abused or situations where things just didn't work out and they had stepped out on faith and they had done what they believed God wanted them to do and then it all fell apart. And it's not just those guys. That's true for many of us, right? In other places. When things fall apart, we have to fight for faith. And we have to put our trust in the name of the Lord. And so we trust God by praying in every circumstance. And we trust God by believing he hears and answers our prayer, and we trust God by believing that his answers are right. Another promise that David writes for the king in Psalm 20 is that God will fulfill the desires of his heart. And if you think about that for a little bit in the life of David, that's a little scary. Because what were the desires of his heart when he looked out off the city, over the city and saw Bathsheba? Right? And so we need to look at that term a little bit. In that phrase where it says, God will give you the desires of your heart, in the original Hebrew, the word desire is not there at all. It literally says something like, may he give according to your heart. And there's a sense in there that, where that phrase is used again. Another place it's used is in 1 Samuel 13, 14, where it says David was a man after God's own heart. Or the next chapter in 1 Samuel 14, 7, where Jonathan's uh, armor bearer bravely follows him into battle is Jonathan and the armor bearer against the Philistines. And he says to Jonathan, do all that is in your heart Listen to this. I am with you, heart and soul. And so the prayer here for the king is that his heart will be aligned to the heart of God. And that is an awesome prayer for us to pray for ourselves and for each other. Jesus taught us to pray something similar. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Line up my heart with yours so much that I'm doing your will just as it's done in heaven. Shape my heart to love what you love and hate what you hate and to desire what you desire. And guess what? As your desires become more like God's desires, guess what he's going to give you? The desires of your heart. And so let's learn to pray that for ourselves and for each other. God, make my heart to beat in rhythm with yours. So Piney Ridge Church, trust in the Lord with all your heart in every circumstance of your life. Fight for faith to pray in all circumstances, trusting that God hears 
and will answer in the way that is best for you. And I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention that David, being the king of Israel, is a type pointing forward to the ultimate king of Israel, Jesus Christ, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When Jesus walked the earth, many of these things that are prayed for for the kings were true of him. He trusted in God in every way. He was faithfully obedient. His heart beat as one with the Father's. And therefore, when he suffered and died, God did save him. And there was much joy at his salvation. When he, I can't imagine when he ascended into heaven and took his place at the right hand of the Father, what a great celebration of joy there was. And he's going to return one day triumphantly with all his heavenly hosts and he will destroy every rule and authority and every power and he will reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you've been baptized in a local church, in affirmation of that faith, I invite you now in just a moment to come to the Lord's table. You'll exit to the left of your row. You'll come to the front. If you need gluten-free, just come on over here to the left. We have a regular table. We also have a gluten-free table over here. And if you haven't yet put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and I urge you not to come and partake of communion, because it's not for you, not yet. But I would encourage you to pray or to come back. I'm going to be in the back for the rest of the gathering. You feel free to come talk to me. I would love to share the gospel with you more fully or talk to me or another Christian after the gathering or fill out a connection card and put it in one of the offering boxes in the back and we'll get hold of you. We would love to share the gospel with you. But for those of you who should come, here's my encouragement to you. I encourage you to take the elements of the supper back to your seat and pray asking God to strengthen you for, the, for your battle this week against sin and to strengthen you to withstand temptation. I encourage you to make a commitment to pray as your first response to every situation you encounter this week. And then pray and ask God to give you the faith to trust that his answers are best.
They're best for your good and for his glory. After you've prayed that, then take communion, understanding as you, as you eat the wafer and drink the juice that it was his broken body and his spilled blood that won those victories for you, and those victories are already assured. And give him, and, and take communion together with great thanksgiving and great joy. Those of you who should may now come to the Lord's table.